Hello and welcome back to Equity. We are uh, live today over on Twitter Spaces. You might be hearing this a little bit later on, but this is Alex and I am joined by my IRL bestie, Danny Crichton. Danny, we are here to talk about all things media, so give us the summary. Good news, bad news, where are we? It's a, it's a mixed bag today. So uh, we had Politico, uh, Forbes, and Vice News all going on today. Um, so at the top of the show, we're going to talk about uh, Axel Springer, the German media conglomerate buying Politico. Forbes is spacking, and Vice uh, had layoffs and is doing another pivot to video, uh, which is not related to the last pivot to video or the pivot before that. So lots of pivots. Um, so one is up, one is out, and one is down. Uh, so it's a mixed bag. And on top of that, next week we're closing, like I said, the the Apollo acquisition for our parent company, Verizon Media. So it is just media central going on here. Are we allowed to say that that deal is closing? Is that allowed? Yeah, I think it's public. They, oh, it's it's public. Still, okay. still targeting for September 1st. And uh, if you followed some of the, the coverage in either Business Insider or CNBC, our parent company apparently doesn't know anything of what's going on, uh, which uh, makes us feel very confident about the future. Yeah, there's nothing more confidence-inspiring than not knowing who your CEO will be in four days' time. So uh, maybe, Danny, maybe they haven't told everyone yet because it's me or you. Maybe it could be us. Maybe we are the next VM, well, Yahoo CEOs, apparently. Well, maybe the, the Harry Potter owl will deliver the uh, golden envelope uh, this weekend, and I'll be pleasantly surprised. Sadly, we're both older than 11, so we're not going to Hogwarts. Let's start with <laughs> Axel Springer and Politico. Uh, Danny, Politico, of course, a, a massive American political media enterprise, has a large paid subset called Politico Pro, runs a bunch of newsletters. Uh, you know, we have various views about its content, I'm sure, but the deal, not a big surprise, but a big price tag. Yeah, so Axel Springer um, it was most well-known locally within Germany for its Build newspaper, which is one of the most popular newspapers in the world. Um, has in, in recent years really expanded out into the digital media world. So uh, six years ago, bought out Business Insider for $300 million and change. Um, it did a joint venture with Politico a couple of years ago to build out uh, what is known as Politico Europe. Um, and uh, recently, uh, with our friends at Morning Brew, uh, did a, what I guess a majority stake? They buy the whole thing or, or most of it? I think, I think it was most of it. Most of it uh, for Morning Brew. So connecting that into the Business Insider realm. And so it was big news today that they uh, announced at a deal valued at around a billion dollars that they're buying out the totality of Politico, the rest of their 50% stake in Politico uh, Europe, and our friends at Protocol, uh, the new kind of policy tech uh, site that just launched about, what, 18 months ago or so. Give or take, yeah. I, I have to say, of all the media properties in the world, Polit uh, Protocol has had one of the most active early lives because it, it, it launched right before COVID hit. COVID hit. It laid off a bunch of its staff. Then it staffed up massively. And in the middle of that staffing push, uh, it got sold to, to Axel Springer. Uh, Danny, and Axel Springer is um, not owned by KKR, the private equity giant, but I think they own 46, 45% somewhere in there. Uh, does that imply financial backing or does that just imply that someone's already take a, tried to take a lot of the value uh, out of the company? Well, we believe it was a value deal. So they went in, uh, took it private. It was used to be a publicly traded company. Um, and KKR looks like they've been trying to scale up on the growth kind of value side. So trying to create value, investing in the properties, certainly Business Insider, uh, which has been owned by them the longest among these digital media brands, has expended tremendously. I mean, looking at the staff just in the tech world that we know, um, it seems like everyone works at Business Insider these days. I mean, it, it was it was the other job I was talking to before I came back to TZ, frankly, because they were hiring and I wanted a new job. And, you know, they, I have a lot of friends there. Um, thinking broadly, though, we have BI or Business Insider or just Insider now, which is an enormous website network and also a paid 
uh, product. Danny, they had their own paywall and so forth. Politico has paid products. Uh, Morning Brew doesn't really fit into this matrix. But uh, what, what do you think the overall strategy here is? Is it to build an enormous ad-driven network? Is it to kind of monetize businessy and political content? Like, I'm trying to make this all line up in my head, and I'm kind of struggling. And I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think they've had a huge focus on the business finance press. Um, they do own some of those assets in the German press. Um, obviously, Business Insider fits within that context. Morning Brew. Um, uh, Axel Springer was also in talks earlier this year to buy Axios. Um, so there was a oh, high, I forgot about know, that, yes. uh, which seemed yes. to have broken apart. And according to at least some of the reporting I read today, um, those talks are permanently off because of the Politico deal. Um, so uh, you know, it seems like they wanted a Politico, you know, a political and business publication, and Axios sort of spurned them, so they went with Politico instead. Brutal. And uh, just to put context on how much money Axel Springer itself is worth in the 2019 deal with KKR, they sold um, 43.54%. I happen to have the exact numbers here for roughly $3.2 billion. That's a converted uh, currency number. So Axel Springer is worth six, seven billion dollars, which means it's worth more than Yahoo, Denny. <laughs> it is, uh, which is actually kind of, uh, I mean, it's both like a sad statement, but I, I think it's also a commentary on their classifieds business because the part that people don't see with Axel Springer is they own dozens of these digital classified sites so job wow. boards um sale you know for sale wanted ads all kinds of different things um they're still very valuable you know Hearst I think had a couple of these products over the years um they're not public and they're not very popular and you don't really think about them as highly valuable they are they still develop a lot of money and um they still get a, a lot of revenue that way Hey, being unpopular and profitable has been the TechCrunch model for 25 years now, whatever it's been. <laughs> exactly. let's, not, let's not get too spicy about that. Uh, but when it does come to companies building out a very broad media platform, of course, that brings us to Forbes. Forbes, uh, a traditional business publication, magazine back in the day, uh, ended up with quite a digital focus and has been rapidly expanding its, its, its product footprint, for lack of a better phrase, Danny. So going into the SPAC, before you saw the numbers and everything else, how optimistic were you about the Forbes business overall? Well, I think if you look at the digital media purchases over the year, the irony has always been that the digital media acquisitions have always been uh, legacy brands. You look at Financial Times as a good example that got bought uh, by Nikkei a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, that's right. um, legacy brand rebuilt for the digital world, rebuilt around subscription, proved the model and was super popular. Forbes, I believe, got started in, I want to say, the 1930s. I could be off of a little bit plus or minus there. Uh, went through a couple of generations of the Forbes family owning it. Uh, Malcolm Forbes, Steve Forbes, and then most recently uh, has really focused on digital and, um, you know, has been one of the most successful properties. So there's the core product, which is just news and, and feature pieces. Um, but then Forbes has also created a bunch of franchises over the years, like Forbes 30 Under 30, um, the Midas List, which has been around a long time, but has obviously been popularized with the rise of tech in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and, and you see it in the numbers. So in 2013, digital actually surpassed print revenue at Forbes uh, eight years ago. Uh, just to give you a comparison, I think the New York Times surpassed it last year uh, yeah. from digital into print. So, you know, way earlier to that. And according to the numbers we had from the SPAC deck, 150 million folks in the digital audience in 2020. So huge reach, huge amounts of dollars. Uh, valued at, I guess, Alex, uh, an enterprise value of $685 million with some tax credits built into that. Yeah. And then once you throw in the cash, because enterprise value, of course, strips out cash and adds debt, which is an important way to think about the price of an acquisition. Uh, but we in this kind of tech world tend to think more about equity values. So to put that number on it, uh, Forbes will be worth around $830 million in equity terms after the combination. Uh, and that does 
assume certain things like no redemptions and so forth. So the final number will be a little bit different. Uh, but after all this work, Danny, after nearly 100 years, give or take in business, uh, it's uh, 83% of a unicorn, which, you know, as a person who works in media, does not make me super happy. Like, I wish Forbes was worth 10 times this much. Well, for sure. And I mean, it, it's worth double what Business Insider sold in 2015. So I think you're seeing a little bit of expansion in, in value there. Um, but there are some um, crazy numbers. So 500,000 print subs, um, which is actually not too shabby for the magazine industry today. Not, not but at all. The, but the number that blew my mind, which you shared, Alex, is that they had a quote from the deck, 17 staff writers for this place. And I don't know what a staff writer is, uh, because they also have 100 content producers. And I, I want to believe... Uh, that there isn't some sociological difference in those two jobs because one sounds awesome and the other sounds um, terrifying. A new economy, I was going to say. Mm. <laughs> and, and when you say when you say new economy in that sense, you have to do it in you with an umlaut, right. like new metal. <laughs> exactly. Um, Stumpstackian, uh, I think, was the new term. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, to be clear, though, this this spectacle also breaks out reporters and senior reporters, of which there are twenty eight, and so it's a little hard to tell exactly what's what here. But call it fifty on the staff and reporting side, 100 content producers, 176 total house editorial staff. Not that big, frankly. Um, they were smaller than I expected in terms of, of, of just people paid to write. But given their kind of massive franchise of everything from lists to a thing called Q.ai, which apparently is an investing app that Forbes built that I hadn't heard of, um, they've really leveraged this brand. I, uh, I'm trying to think about a, uh, a to the hilt. I think is just let's be fair. They've they've leveraged it pretty hard and they and they've gotten this far. And my only real hope is that the the core Forbes writing experience persists because people like Alex Conrad and a bunch of other folks there are fantastic. Well, we had Alex on the uh, program just a couple of weeks ago, and we also yes. learned that uh, Alex lives like a hundred feet away from me, uh, which was fun. Uh, but the actual <laughs> crazy thing, talking about leverage, uh, we also found out because the company d- uh, gave us the number two thousand six hundred and fifty contributors on the Forbes network. So all these columnists you've seen, obviously very popular in LinkedIn. Uh, it's on everyone's sort of uh, bio and resume page. But um, I guess I, I expected that number to be higher. I don't know if there was some sort of qualifier I, or maybe it's active in the last year, but I expected it to be more like 10,000, not 2,600. So I was a little surprised by that number. Remember that time we had the Crunch Network at TechCrunch? I, I do remember viscerally. In yes. the sense and, that the uh, Danny, wounds are still visible on yes. my, yeah. You've given away my next question, but Danny, how did you feel about Crunch Network overall as a general business strategy? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the wounds weren't self-inflicted, thankfully. Uh, they were inflicted by others into me. Um, but it was hard, right? Because keeping the quality bar, uh, and yeah. most people are not full-time writers, are not that great at writing. It's a skill, it's a technique, it requires a lot of practice. Um, as you well know, Alex, if you get out of practice, even for a professional writer, it can be a lot of hard to get back into the flow of things. So. Uh, the Crunch Network was always one of these like high value ads. We still have guest posts occasionally on Extra Crunch, um, yes. but it's hard to always deliver great stuff when people are not doing it professionally. And, and that's what I was trying to get trying to get towards, which is why I'm not surprised to see this contributing number smaller than we might have guessed. Because I think Forbes has tightened it up. I mean, I, if you go back a couple of years ago, I feel like there was much more stuff coming out on Forbes from folks, and it seems to have gotten better. And um, that's good. You know, I think that's that's a great way to approach things. And certainly they, they've kept scaling because Forbes is expecting, I think it's three and a half billion monthly page views right now, which is a number that I struggle to kind of get my head around because TechCrunch is a pretty big site, but we're not that big, you know, like, holy geez, that's a they, they claim to be a top 50 website, uh, which is very impressive. That's that's high. 
Well, and, and that reach does go down to the bottom line. So we haven't talked, I think, too much about revenues, but um, good, decent growth in the last couple of years, uh, minus 2020 because of the COVID uh, situation. But um, Alex, these numbers are really small and maybe you have better eyesight than me. Uh, I have myopia, but this number looks like $178 million if I'm reading it properly. I'm going to, I pulled up the deck. We, we pulled some of the deck into our notes doc, which uh, shrunk the numbers from, from, I think from it was small size, to minuscule. I think this is font size two uh, going on here. But for my read, it's 178 million in 2019, going down to 163 million top line revenue in 2020. Um, the margins at the contribution margin level uh, in, is 56% uh, and declining to 53% in 2020. Um, and nope, that's like, Denny. Stop reading. You can't, you're reading the numbers wrong. It went up to 63% <laughs> in 2020, and they expected to roughly stay there. Uh, and the revenue numbers that Danny just shared are X magazine. So what Forbes has done is essentially broken out its magazine revenues because they're declining. Uh, 33 million in 2019, 20 million last year, expecting 18 million this year, and then 16 million uh, in 2022. And so the company is really saying, look, our future is digital, and we have this legacy business, but certainly it is fading and is not the thing you should be thinking about when you consider Forbes. They, they really want that digital software-y, uh, not multiple, obviously, but like at least uh, Patino or not even veneer, but DNA. There you go. That's the polite way of saying it. And, and look, uh, a profitable 19% EBITDA, which is uh, something you can't say about most SaaS companies. So Magnum Opus acquisition, the SPAC that is going out here, um, just debuted. All the docs are available on their website if you're really curious about the model further. Uh, but I think it's a it's a pretty good story altogether, and um, I think this is the first of many. I mean, I, I I think there's what eight or nine SPACs focused on media, and particularly digital media buyouts. Uh, we've seen it with yeah. BuzzFeed, a few others. Yep. Um, I expect a few more of these to go uh, in the coming year, uh, weeks, and um, even publicly, if you read some of the stuff about our parent company, uh, I believe CNBC was the one who report that they're trying to break us up and possibly SPAC us all. Um, yeah, so we so, may be part uh, of the fund, uh, uh, you know, trend all at the same time. Yeah, I was literally going to say, let's get into some more trouble, given that we haven't stirred the pot enough on the internal side. And uh, Danny, do you think that TC is going to get broken off by Apollo and then spacked? I, I know, I know, uh, actually not a lot confidentially because uh, no one on the business <laughs> side tells me anything. So I feel like I can actually talk a lot. Uh, on the, the editorial side, I can tell you that uh, a bunch of people have reached out being like, how do I buy you? And I'm like, I, you, you're probably talking to the wrong person. I, I work, yeah, you, <laughs> I write, sto I write words <laughs> down on the page. Like, well, let's um, be clear. Danny is my boss's boss, as we like to joke on the show, but he's not in charge of the business. Like we have a firewall between the two halves. One half writes and, and the other half makes words into money, which is great. And we appreciate them, but we're not them. And I, we don't know. I'm somehow Alex's boss's boss, but he has more power over me. So I don't know how that works. That's called structuralistness or holacracy, uh, which we practice pretty <laughs> Religiously here at TechCrunch, but I will say one of the benefits for us is we are not at this price point. Uh, we are definitely not at the 650 to a billion dollar price for TechCrunch, um, which does open the field to a lot of uh, non-traditional buyers. So that's yes. the family offices have reached out. Um, you know, even some VCs have reached out to uh, potentially buy us or at least ping Apollo and be like, hmm, interesting. You have this property over there. It seems like you want to invest in gaming. Uh, this TechCrunch thing we'd love to take off of your hands, so we will shall see. Let, let's just say, and like, and like to be clear, I'm a kind of died in the wool TechCruncher. This is my second stint. Big love for the brand. Very lucky to have worked longitudinally with a bunch of people here, and so we will always poke fun and make light, and and you know generally be our, our jerk selves. But like, I, I'm really, really, really crossing my fingers and toes 
that we end up well through this this period of transition, as it were, because TechCrunch is a special place, and I really want to preserve what we have. And so I'm determined to be optimistic, and I'm going to stick with it. I, I will say um, I've only worked here a couple of years, uh, but this is my fourth brand I will work under. So I, when I joined, it was AOL, and then it was Oath, and then Verizon Media, and now it is Yahoo with an exclamation point. So it just goes to yes. show you that even though some things stay the same, that would be TechCrunch, things around us are always changing. But talking yeah. about always change, uh, we should move on to Vice and our last topic here. Uh, we found out, uh, unfortunately, this morning that um, a, a set of folks, I guess we don't necessarily know the exact full number uh, around Vice, uh, there have been layoffs this morning um, from the team as they sort of repositioned the company for video growth going forward. Okay, I, I've lost the plot entirely on which round this is. So we've done the pivot to video several years ago, and then everyone got fired, and Vice had layoffs, and then Vice was supposed to go public, and then it didn't. And now they're pivoting to video again, and they've laid off more people. I, I, I really, you know that, that time is flat circle thing? Like, it, it really hits me hard here, because I'm losing my ability to keep the various Vice sagas figured out. Like, I can't... Uh, this is, what, the fourth round of layoffs I think I've seen from Vice? Who's... I mean, I mean, this has been a, an extremely fast-growing company that then, you know, sort of recovered uh, when they figured out that the EBITDA margin wasn't there. Um, but what mm. was interesting is, you know, I think Vice, more than anyone, has tried to constantly reinvent itself to adapt to yes. the changing media environment. So it started as a magazine, you know, went digital very early, did pivot to video when that was popular with Facebook, you know, went back to text and longer form, feature articles, now back to video. Um, and um, according to a leaked email um, from the leadership uh, at Corey, I uh, said that um, our audiences live in a 360 quote surround sound media environment, and we need to reposition the company to to basically target that. Alex, when you hear the term 360 surround sound media environment, what comes to mind? Well, after I finish vomiting into my own hands, what I what I hear and see uh, are the fingerprints of overpaid consultants. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Does that just mean that people are busy and have options? Because that's always been the case. Like, think of think think about 360 media environments back in the day when they were competing local newspapers in every single city. Right, that was a loud media environment too. We had the radio. I mean, this isn't new. It may be fractionally worse, but like, I, I was just reading. That's my opinion. I, I was just reading a history of uh, Berlin, the city, and uh, found out in the 1920s and 1930s that there were more than a hundred daily newspapers in Berlin alone covering the news. And I was like, See, that's a lot. <laughs> that's amazing. We could have, Danny, you and I could have been competing micro paper barons. How fun would that have been? I would have published like, you know, Danny Crichton steals hat and it'd be great. Well, you know, that's sad because uh, also in the same memo from Corey Adv uh, Advice uh, notes that uh, due to a precipitous decline in text consumption over the last few years, roughly 75%, the text will no longer be a major focus for Vice going forward. Um, and I saw that and I'm a text writer. Um, yep. I barely know how to talk into a microphone. Uh, in fact, I, I've gotten so good, I'm actually talking into two microphones right now. It's pretty incredible. Yes, we are. Um, yeah. And I didn't even have to use tape this time. Uh, but uh, still not uh, comfortable with videos and still haven't installed TikTok. More as an affectation than anything. Um, but Alex, uh, what is the future of text? Because when I read this and I see major sites sort of doing the pivot, getting rid of the spoken word, so to speak, or, or the written word... Um, you know, what's the future for a lot of classic news, which oftentimes doesn't, you know, get delivered the best in, in video or audio products? Yeah, I just don't buy it that me, that print is dead. I mean, one, it's been around literally forever and it's incredibly popular in a number of formats. Um, you know, TC's audience is 
large people read us more than they watch us. I mean, we do occasionally post equities recordings on YouTube because it's kind of like a, like a freebie for us a layup, if you will. Uh, but fundamentally TechCrunch is a, is a, is a written property with a couple of podcasts. I mean, that still, it still remains our core focus. And you know, when I think about the New York times and what they've built as a subscription product over the last five years, uh, it's text. That's their main product. Sure. The daily is a great show. Uh, but if you took away the daily, the times would be okay. If you took away the times, the daily is dead. And that to me is the, uh, is the difference between, uh, this kind of blather, which is just surrender as far as I can tell. And, uh, and you know, long form, long-term written articles creation, which is great. I mean, look at the Atlantic getting in the last 18 months and how much it's grown by writing long form, great stuff. That was topical. I know, shock. Uh, no 360 surrounds how media environment going on over there. I mean, look, I've got like how many computers in this room and it's not even 360. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are they talking about? I mean, I, I think everyone who's like 50 and older thinks that children just have a phone duct taped to their face and then someone just plays TikTok all day. That's not actually the case. Um, you haven't it's walked not. around Bro- uh, Brooklyn more recently, Alex. Uh, I can tell because the duct tape is real, but... <laughs> I think that's a media shot. That's what's going on in the world today. Are we doing Q&A? Uh, no, we're not. We well, have to jump. We got to jump. Uh, oh, it's three. Oh, shit. Keep, oh, I shouldn't swear. In- oh, it's PG-13. Oh, fuck. You can't uh, say fuck on the show. God damn. Uh, listen, <laughs> next week, next week is a couple of things. If you're, if you're hanging out with us right now, listen up. It's, it's Y Combinator Demo Day, and it's transition day for the broader Verizon Media Group family. So if you see your local TechCrunch reporter... Uh, we can't do hugs because of COVID, but buy them a coffee or something because it's going to be a weird, weird, hard week. So think about us. And uh, with that, Equity is back uh, tomorrow morning. So goodbye. Goodbye.